All we want to do is, one, recognize the incredibly valuable role that parents play in all of this, but two, provide them with resources and education that can help inform them of what a young athlete's journey actually comprises. Hi there, it's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Now this podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who have supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. And We hope that you can find something in these conversations and insights that can help you reflect and develop yourself or the people around you and we hope that they can support and champion you to understand, relate and progress in your work and maybe the way that you live your life. Now, I'm delighted to share with you the news that we're partnering with a multi-award winning health food and drinks company, Junius. So Junius have made a superb range of plant-based juices. They're all cold pressed, so the nutrients aren't blitzed in the process of making them. And what I really like about Junius is Maria, the founder, has put some genuine thought into the unique formulations, some with more of a focus on protein, some with more of a focus on energy, and others blended with a caffeine shop for when you might need a healthier way for a pick-me-up. I also love the fact that they've got some really groovy names such as Fab, Zip and Rev. So I would wholly recommend giving these award-winning juices a go. And we've teamed up with Junior so that you can benefit from a 10% discount on your first order. They have a range of themed boxes with seven juices plus seven juice shots that you can choose based on your health goal. Or you can choose a mixed selection box to give them all a go. In the show notes of this episode, you'll find an exclusive code CHAMPIONS10. And when you go to the checkout at wearejunius.com forward slash shop, make sure you enter your code. So we're delighted to partner with Junius. Give their juices a go. They are absolutely genuine quality nutrition. And so to this week's guest. And this week's guest is Peter Vint. I got in touch with Peter with the full intention of discussing analytics and the trend towards data and to fully explore the wave of interest, activity and investment in capturing, understanding and using information. And we do explore this, especially as he has directed and delivered this function at the highest level at the United States Olympic Committee and in the INEOS sub two hour marathon project with Elliot Kipchoge. And now Peter holds the role of chief of sport at USA Volleyball, so a much broader leadership style role. But I can't honestly say that we spent the whole conversation discussing data. That's because Peter is such an interesting person. We ended up exploring adapting to the pandemic, uh, culture, long-term athlete development and the role of parents, just to name a few areas. So I promise you I'll be exploring information and data in perhaps more detail with future guests in future episodes. But in the meantime, enjoy uh, a free ranging conversation with someone who over the last 10 years of, of getting to know Peter, it's become apparent to me, Peter is a luminary, a source of deep insight and knowledge and philosophy. And on that note, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Peter. First of all, how are you? Good, Steve. Um, great to catch up with you again. It's been a while, um, but yeah, we're doing okay in, in sunny Colorado right now. It's nice. Well, it's sunny UK, which is an anomaly in itself, which does, which might point to some of the, 
pleasant Indian summer that we've got, or it might point to an environmental crisis. But, well, um, give it 30 minutes and it'll change. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes, actually, it's freezing cold tomorrow morning. So, um, Peter, it's been a pleasure just to connect with you over the years. And um, we've done workshops. You spoke at our conference uh, in 2018. And the reaction to your talk there about knowing your, your numbers and harnessing your insights was was actually amazing um, from from quarters that I really didn't expect, such as one I really remember actually was the it was Lululemon supported the conference and their marketing team came along and they were saying we just love Peter's talk. Now, of course, your talk was brilliant, but I wasn't expecting the marketing department to be <laughs> lapping it up. Uh, yeah, right, it's a rarity. <laughs> it was. It was. Um, that the learning from it was really broad. Um, so I'm, I'm keen to get into that specialist topic around analysis and, and insights, and, and but also your leadership through USOC Premiership Football. And, and at the moment, you're, you're Chief of Sport at USA Volleyball. How, how is it going? And what are you encountering in the middle of this COVID pandemic? Well, uh, Thanks, Steve. It's uh, it's been a really challenging year. I, I, this is maybe the the most interesting and challenging first year of a new job that I've I've ever faced, and and I don't know that any of us were entirely ready. I think that uh, through all of this, we've uh, we've unfortunately, as an organization, as many have. Um, had to to demonstrate some financial restraint in terms of really pulling back budgets. We had a, a layoff and furlough event uh, that was challenging where we lost about a third of our staff. Um, and the folks that remain with us are, are incredibly passionate and dedicated and, and very learning-centric. They, they love the sport. They are really open and excited to think about new ways of approaching um, our work, both in national team support uh, from indoor sitting and and our uh, beach teams, but also thinking about our youth development pathways and even coach education. So it's um, it's a challenging time, but I think it's one that all of us um, are rolling up our sleeves and, and looking at with a sense of great opportunity, that this is a chance for us to turn it into a direction that is really aligned with what we want it to be and, and what we think might be a healthier and more holistic developmental approach um, and communicate that in such a way that we can not just talk that talk regularly with our, our media platforms and conferences and other communications uh, with the, the broader constituency, uh, but we can actually walk the walk, and I think that's the most important thing. And and that's I think where you and I connect so deeply on just the sports science front is, you know, it's one thing to know stuff; it's quite another to make or create impact, <clears throat> real impact, as a result of that knowledge and the willingness to work with others to create something different. And and do you th- do you sense that that opportunity for change is being taken? Fully, I mean, I've got a, a sense that there are probably two different dynamics for for change. People need to change because they can't get together in meetings, for example. They can't be face to face. But then they're almost people are starting to think, well, let's change because it will make things better. It's almost like you've opened up the requirement for change out of necessity, and then people are now starting to think, let's 
let's make the change because there's improvements to be had. We can alter the way that we live and work and, and respect each other and connect with each other. Well, it's a really good question, and I'd answer it this way. I, I do think that because we were forced into uh, a, a virtual environment that we had to think very differently about what we had to offer and how could we make that offering engaging and interesting and useful and valuable to others. And, and I think that our, our team has largely done that. I think that uh, I'm really proud of how we've come together and, and thought very differently about um, getting information out. We, we created a couple of new virtual programs, really just educational platforms um, that stemmed out of what would have been a, um, a collaborative kind of coach and um, national team development opportunity and, and ended up kind of flourishing into this HP Academy and a tech academy that was all just you know, virtual education. Uh, so I think that really showed us that there is a place for this. And, and while a lot of us may still prefer to work in person or, or have those face-to-face -face conversations, I think that we, we all realize that some really powerful things can happen um, if we just realize that there are opportunities to share what we know in more effective and broader ways. Um, in terms of the other piece of this, there's kind of an underlying um, <clears throat> structural piece that I'm, I'm more concerned about, actually, and that is kind of the, the U.S.'s, um, I suppose, the U.S. culture of pay-to-play in youth sport. I think there have been some really great conversations taking place. Uh, the Aspen Institute has, has led some of these. Um, a couple of other groups have stepped up trying to reimagine what youth sport could and maybe should look like in the U.S. Uh, for those that may be listening that are a little bit less familiar with that, essentially from young ages, uh, youth sport participation may be introduced at a very small fee, just kind of a participation base, come pick up a t-shirt and pay for a little bit of the coach's time or for a field. But then it very quickly, quickly moves into uh, a pretty significant financial investment for families to support what ends up uh, becoming a, a highly specialized single sport development pathway for, for young kids that now go off on travel tournaments at very young ages. And that continues all the way through the time that they may be 18 years old and they're seeking college scholarships. Um, and I think what, what COVID has laid bare in, in the U.S. culture is that um, the, the number of interrelationships that exist within this pay-to-play model that is ultimately built on the backs of parents and families having to pay the bills um, is pretty vulnerable. And it's also not really the healthiest youth development structure that we could imagine. So I think that I'm really engaged and, and interested in, in how this might actually look different coming out of COVID-19, but I, I do have a sense that we may return to normal and uh, then it will be on national governing bodies and other forward-looking institutions to come forward and offer um, alternatives and viable alternatives that are recognized by athletes, by coaches, and by families, particularly, 
as a different way and a more, um, I think, healthy way to bring about all the benefits of youth sport participation. Yes, competition and, and high level uh, athlete development for those that are so inclined or that have those kinds of aspirations, but not at the expense of childhood and not at the expense of, of your, uh, your family's uh, life savings. That's interesting. So now I'm, I'm suppose I'm bridging to your specialist topic already because I'm just thinking about the discussions about return to play, compressed pre-seasons, and the reference point, certainly from, from the teams that I was consulting with or the forums that I was engaging with, was the NFL strike. Uh, uh, so it was this 2011, so there was a... So the players went on strike and the data about injury and uh, concussion and incidences just went through the roof. Effectively, people weren't prepped, but there was an expectation for competitiveness. Are you, are you gathering information now about the structures that you're referring to about the pathways for youth development that potentially you could be setting up a case for, for change if the reversion back to normal starts to creep or crawl back in? Well, I, I wish I could say that the answer to that was was an emphatic yes. Um, but, but in reality, I think that what we've tried to do is, is rely on best practices, rely on guidance from the sports science community, and, and try to convey that effectively to our membership organizations and, and others that may be looking for guidance on how should we actually bring kids back into the fold and at what point do we feel they're ready for competition or a multi-day tournament where they're playing multiple matches in a day. Um, <clears throat> but again, I think that because of the way the, the U.S. youth sports system is designed, our, our ability to influence has to be based on these really terrifically tasting carrots. Um, we, we don't really have sticks to wield. And I'm not much of a stick wielder anyway. I don't really like taking that approach, do this or else, but rather do this because it's the right thing to do and do this because it will help keep our athletes um, healthier and, and develop in a more, uh, again, I'll use the word holistic, but but well-founded way. And as you know, Steve, there's a, there's a massive uh, range of coach experience, of coach education, of um, the understanding of, of what uh, competitiveness requires from a physiological, biomechanical, mental uh, standpoint. And the, the separation of what is required even at competitive youth sport levels relative to coaches understanding sometimes, and, and this is certainly not a blanket comment. There are a number and, and, and many coaches that, that have a really good understanding, whether by training or by feel of what a responsible progression back toward uh, competition or even returning to full intensity training should look like. Um, we've tried to be pretty clear with our guidance but we we're not really wielding sticks to to ensure or to make people comply with that. Mm. 
Interesting. And interesting from the point of view of the dynamic of short-term, long-term thinking. I think a lot of coaches, whether it's, say, in football, are thinking about what's my kid's five-meter speed, 30-meter speed distance covered now, or what does it need to be? But now we're thinking, actually, we don't know when it needs to be (laughs) there so that the the certainty of deadlines is, is starting to shift in that sense. And I hope it really does stretch people's thinking to let's take time now to put some fundamentals in place that really prepares young children to to excel longer term and enjoy it enjoy the process of it i think we're we're seeing a sea change over here in the uk about how rather than just did we win it's a case of how did we win did we enjoy do we enjoy it uh did people passengers along the way the the participants the pilots did they enjoy it would they want to do it again yeah right yeah, yeah, and and it was interesting. I mean, uh, talking to Mark Webber, Formula One driver, and and he had this real dichotomy in his head of, you know, I I just I value my career. I'm so grateful for it. But would I go back? No way. Uh, <laughs> but I I'm grateful for having been through it. And so that's that's quite an interesting leadership dynamic yes. where you're setting that course for other people, isn't it? Really. Well, the other thing that we're we're really going to do I, I don't think that we've we've really made major strides yet but it's it's definitely part of of my commitment set is that we're onboarding a, a very comprehensive parent education platform as well <clears throat> and and while I think that's valuable anywhere I think it's particularly important in the US where parents ultimately are the drivers of the market because they're the ones paying the bills for kids to participate in these progressively higher level, um, more competitive club sport environments. So what I feel is that parents aren't always armed with the kinds of information that will empower them just to have not necessarily confrontational or adversarial conversations with coaches or club directors, but rather informed ones, asking questions about what is the return to, to play plan here? Um, you know, or is my kid just going to get thrown back in first night of training after three months off? And the intensity of the first night of training is just as it was when they were in peak competition season. And so all we want to do is, one, recognize the incredibly valuable role that parents play in all of this. But two, provide them with resources and education that can help inform them of what a young athlete's journey actually comprises. What is involved? What happens during puberty? Why, why is my 14-year-old so moody and what can I do to, to support them in, in ways that don't make me oh, want to? If you've got an answer to that, <laughs> yeah, that would be really good. Oh, I'm still working yeah, let's on get it. That, let's get yeah. some analysis around that. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's, I, I think as we've imagined what we want to do um, this has given us, yes, some unfortunate consequence as a result of needing to cancel tournaments and, and needing to cancel, uh, you know, big youth development all the way through national team competitions. But it's also given us an opportunity in terms of time and space to think about what we really want to be when we, when we come back to this conversation and, and how we want to be perceived. And we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, we're really just at the beginning stages. And again, I just started in this role uh, just last uh, October. 
but I think that it's the right way to go. And I've got a group of people that are, are pretty committed to making that happen with me. So it's great. Mm, it's a fascinating line. I think I could pursue this one further. I think it's, I, I want to branch or I think it'd be remiss of me not to, to tap into your expertise around data and analysis. And as a former director of high performance at the USOC and having worked in premiership football and so on, and recently on the INEOS sub two hour project, am I not mistaken? That's correct. I haven't, I didn't even catch up on uh, with you on that one. So that, that in itself is fascinating. And I, I'm, um, I'm keen to sort of get your perhaps philosophical take on where we're at with this area of, of data where it, it, it team, seems to me that so many operations are being taken over by understanding and insight and data. I mean, I remember you presenting at the conference, some of your reflections from a time at the USOC and looking at competitive advantage to win medals, that the probability of being able to win a certain medal or even that the that there's a chance to win a medal in a in a slightly weaker field, for example, and um, I suppose Ineos is probably a good example of the sub two hour where you had people some just celebrating this as a as an achievement of thinking and a, and with Eliot Kipchoge charismatically delivering the performance, but the pursuit of the goal seemed like a summation of intelligence as well as athletic prowess, and then you had this faction over the other side. And which I understand, which was, ah, oh, this is awful. This is, this has taken the spirit and the competitiveness and the heart out of performance. So yeah, well, it's a massive question, but that almost your sense of, of where data is at about, uh, about supporting the spirit of performance as well as giving an advantage of, uh, to competition. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a lot, a lot I'd like to talk about with that, Steve. And, um, one of the things I'll say, I'll, I'll just briefly mention the, the Ineos 159 project. Um, that project came along for me at a really important time. Uh, I think, you know, being in the trenches for as long as we've been in them, uh, you can get beat up and knocked down and, and you can get tired fighting the good fight. Um, and I was at a time where I was tired. And so I had a remarkable opportunity to join Dave Brailsford and the Ineos team to, to see this project through. And what I can tell you is that there was absolutely no shortage of joy or passion or enthusiasm. It was, it, it had been a long time since sport had made me cry in, in the way that it can. Um, and, and it did. I, I was moved to tears as were guys that had, you never would have imagined the guys that helped with our, um, our pace car engineering, uh, a group called RML out of the UK. I mean, here are these gearheads, these super car guys crying their eyes out, uh, as, after this happened because they had never experienced that in the same way. And so I think, first of all, I'm going to say that <clears throat> I just don't buy that. I, I just don't buy the fact that athletes are robots. I, I, I get the sense that some people are concerned that this overproliferation of data or science or technology is, is interfering with some aspect of the purity of things, but I don't buy it. I, I actually, I sit on the other side of that fence because I, I see it and, and I just, still believe that humans are 
trying as hard as they possibly can to achieve something special. And when they really do, it's, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing thing to see and be a part of. But I will say this, and, and this is, I, I suppose, where I want to try to answer your question, is that first and foremost, I look at data and analytics and science and technology along a continuum. That it, It's not a binary thing of you either are a believer or you're not, that you either do or you don't. I think that there are organizations that clearly have their philosophies grounded in either side of that. But the reality is, is that it is not just black and white. It is entirely gray. And that spectrum of adoption and usage and reflective analysis versus prospective um, analysis of what might be or where might we get the most value out of our next uh, transfer or our next draft pick or, or whatever – um, I just think that there is a, a way to describe that that doesn't put you in one of two boxes. And so the other part of this is that um, I think we've had a huge shift over the past, I don't know, you could probably place this better, Steve, but I'll, I'll say 20 years. Um, in, in terms of when when I was going through training, even as an undergraduate, I was digitizing biomechanics projects on film and a projection digitizer. And the questions that we had <clears throat> and the things that we wanted to do were held back by technology. They were held back because we didn't have the speed. We didn't have the systems that made that efficient and could keep up with our questions. Now, I think with and I'll just use GPS as an example of a technology that has clearly become ubiquitous in so many sports. And now this technology has run ahead to the point where it's gathering so much data and so much information that sometimes it actually runs ahead of our ability to analyze, process, make sense of, and effectively utilize um, let alone ideate and ask questions against. And, and I do think that there are some masters of this trade. I do think that there are a, a number of people that understand very clearly what this is and what it is not and have a very well-defined way of using this to help answer questions regarding training, intensity, directional loads, other types of things that help prepare athletes and teams for the demands of real-life competition. And then there are others that I think are dipping their toe in the water, purchasing uh, sports science technologies or system or people that maybe haven't started with the questions in mind, uh, that they've started with more of a keep up with the Joneses approach rather than a here are things that I don't have that I need and here's why I need them. So um, again, it's a continuum mm -hmm. of, of this whole space. And I think that as technologies are faster, that ranges increase, that accuracy improves, that it's now really up to the practitioners of, of using those things that will or will not make a positive difference with them. And so organizations will have to be smarter about who they hire not only in terms of the credentials and the understanding, but also their ability to communicate effectively. And again, I kind of go back to where you and I probably have this real common bond around making science useful 
It's the same about making analytics useful. Um, I'll, I'll not mention specific people or organizations, but I'm very well aware, as I'm sure you are, of people that are hired as, as professional analysts that are actually very good, very capable, very insightful, and understand their data and how to express it very well. And their reports and their analyses sit unused by um, members of an organization that simply are not prepared or unwilling to do so. Now, I think that those opportunities present uh, grounds for trying to come to a common place, trying to come to a common understanding. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's that gap between what we have and what we know and what in the world will we choose to do with that? How will we make that useful and actionable and impactful that I think separates um, organizations? And, and, and that's where, you know, in the end, I've, I've come at analytics from, from a completely accidental standpoint. I did not aspire to be a data analyst or, or an analytical guy but what I felt is that in the roles that I had held prior to the, the senior director of competitive analysis, research and innovations role at the U.S. Olympic Committee, that in fact, I was just asking questions that we couldn't answer because we, we hadn't invested in the infrastructure or in the data or in the analysis to actually answer those honestly. We, we were, you know, we were telling stories to ourselves and that wasn't good enough. And, and listening to you talk through the INEOS project the, at Kipchoge Sub 2, you know, I, I know in some ways I'm, I'm remembering the Richard Dawkins' Unweaving the Rainbow. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but it's, but it's effectively based on a premise that, that Keats, the poet, said that understanding that light refracts through a prism into its, its prismatic colours that destroys the magic and the poetry of the rainbow. And the whole book is based on, no, it isn't. Actually, once you understand it, it's a very beautiful thing. And that can bring so much joy and, and wonder to the world once you know it. Just because you have explained it doesn't necessarily mean that you've ruined it. <laughs> That's right. Well, and, and I'll say, Steve, we, and I'd be more than happy to talk about INEOS in, in more detail at any time uh, because it was a fascinating project. But what I will say is that to me, and I think everybody who, who really played a, a, a critical role in it, that the most interesting challenges of all were in balancing the what we could do's from a science and technology standpoint with what we needed to preserve from an authenticity standpoint. In the end, I think all of the scientists and engineers were, were very thoughtful in that we wanted to, we wanted to set the table for Elliot and, and the athletes that helped uh, pace him <clears throat> so that at the end of the event, particularly if they were successful, but even if they weren't, that they could stand in front of the world media, the, the stage of sports scientists and, and you know, the newspapers and, and others that would try to decide where this achievement fit in the annals of history. Well, 
we wanted to make sure that they could stand in front of these crowds and be very proud and very confident that what had just been achieved was not an engineered solution. Yes, science and technology and some good critical thinking helped. And, and certainly engineering uh, from Nike helped. But in the end, that was not probably the, the, the final decider. Uh, we worked very carefully and considered a number of alternative realities that we could have manufactured that probably would have ensured that a fit Elliot Kipchoge unequivocally would have shattered that record. But we had to pull the layers of that onion back day after day after day to get to what was the essence of this endeavor. And that was a man against the clock. And, and what could we do to preserve the integrity of that to the greatest possible extent, knowing that even some of the things that we chose to do to break the, the IAAF regulations regarding world record requirements that Look, we're going to give him fuel on the fly. We're not going to make him run over to a fueling station because, well, it's just extra distance. And that doesn't really seem to be in or against the spirit of the endeavor. It's just a rule. Um, and the same with the athletes that uh, were, were pacing him and essentially served as, as drafters uh, or you know, shields that he could draft behind. There simply aren't enough humans that are fast enough that can run for that long at that speed that can stay in the race continuously um, that would have allowed him to actually experience what he did. So um, those were all give and takes and there were dozens and dozens of others that we, we wrestled down. But uh, I think that was the thing for me that as a science guy, as a formally trained sports scientist and, and yet somebody who, who greatly uh, respects and values what, these human achievements can mean that that was the most unique and interesting part for me is always being challenged with that dynamic of overly engineered versus purely authentic. So, okay. So there's a little bit of a manner in which things are delivered. And I think that that opens up quite an interesting aspect of the way we perform. And, and I was in a slightly jovial way thinking about a deterministic model for, uh, ballroom dancing the other day actually it was last year a friend athlete james cracknell um mummy daddy or daddy used to work with him are you gonna help him on on uh, strictly come dancing or dancing with the stars in the u.s i i said no <laughs> no that's beyond reach and it was but it got me just writing down that you know you have to perform the routines but you also have to get on with the judges. You also have to be nice with the cameras. You've got to tell a story about hardship and so on. So deterministic models of just almost, you've, we've got to, got to think about the way in which you perform, not just necessarily the absolute figures, which it sounds like you were, you were toying with there. Do you think this is where this is going? Do you think that there's a, a sense that, that data can only sort of take you so far? And I remember you, sharing at the at the conference about that you can do all the analysis and that's not going to create impact it's the ins insights might create impact for you i'm quoting you now um but it's taking action that's right uh, uh, that that can that can create impact for you and that suggests adapting it suggests 
implementing and the relationships? Do you think people are becoming more nuanced about how they're implementing data? Some are, for sure. Some are, for sure. And before I, I answer the rest of that, I, I do want to congratulate you for maybe being the first human ever to use the words deterministic modeling and jovial um, in, in proximity of one another at all. Yeah, so it's a right laugh good, good in Good on house. you, good on you. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, I, I think so, Stephen. And listen, the, the science behind this is, is actually fairly clear and, and quite compelling that humans aren't really great at making predictions. Even experts are, are not great at, um, at coming up with the right answers in the future. And so the, the challenge, and the challenge that I think that you had posed to me around the presentation topic was um, how do we balance what we know and feel as, as humans and as practitioners and people that have had experience in the field with what the data tell us, particularly when those things are at odds. And what I did in the presentation, and, and I think that there are progressively more and more examples of this where organizations or, or leagues or, or industries that were particularly um, data resistant or analytical, um, analytically um, impaired <coughs> have become <clears throat> some have become more progressive and more willing to try. And, and I think the, the you know, National Football League with uh, fourth down punting situations rather than now the progressive trend of, of going for it in, in you know, fourth and short situations is a classic example of this. And, and more and more examples of these kinds of things are being challenged. And then it is ultimately still up to the coaches and the, and the staff to to make the final call, and sometimes they're going to make the right call, and sometimes they're going to make the wrong call. There are cases where an analytical approach, um, where a coach stand by it, stands by it, leads to the wrong outcome, and that is where you know kind of the deterministic modeling approach now becomes actually in reality, it's probabilistic because while on any given attempt skill execution it can in fact be deterministic i you know if you tell me the uh, the impulse and the mass of a person i can tell you how high their center of mass rose during a vertical jump i, I can tell you that what i can't tell you is if they've hit a, a volleyball successfully with the right impact with the right speed and trajectory because there are elements of of variation that are inherent to human behavior and, and just human motor performance that will always create differences in the outcome. And that's where the deterministic model, when it's now applied over more than one attempt, becomes probabilistic. And I still think that can be really informative, but what we need to recognize is that because it can be probabilistic, now we have variation across people so you and I may try to perform exactly the same skill based on the things we bring to that skill. We may be able to perform them very differently, but equally effectively. And at the same time, it can be applied within a person so that I can look at how my performances vary, either as a function of training or coaching or other interventions. And, and so ultimately, I know that in the, the wise words of a, a good friend, Jim Bowman, a sports psychologist with the U.S. Olympic Committee years ago, if I can just try to make my average better, 
I'm actually tapping into the spirit of that probabilistic approach to performance, which is, listen, if I have to revert to the mean, but my average performance is higher this year than it was last year, then reverting to the mean is going to put me in a better place to succeed than I was a year ago. Fantastic. Look, and I know you've got to go. Um, and that that's a great note to end on. Um, I remember a number of athletes saying to me just that we, we're aiming to beat our opposition on a bad day uh, yeah. in that sense of um, of playing playing the numbers effectively or that consistency. There's always a high probability of having a great conversation with you, Peter. So that's, uh, there you go. Well played. Um, all, always wise, always insightful. Thank, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Steve, thanks for having me. Enjoy the time. Be well. So I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you want to follow Peter, you can do so on Twitter at Peter Vint. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. We're on LinkedIn and Instagram under the handle supporting champions. Don't forget to benefit from the exclusive discount for the handcrafted award winning genius juice range using the discount code champions 10 to get 10% off your first order. Click on the link in the show notes or visit wearejunius.com forward slash shop to take a look at the full range where you can purchase a box of juices tailored to your health goals. Now, if you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help to support you go through these challenging and uncertain times in work, life or sport, then look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring or drop us a note at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk. And there you can sign up for a free consultation to explore which package is right for you. you.